KMTT, Kimi Tzion Tetzei Torah, today is Tuesday, Yom Gimel Chaf Alif Adar, and this is Ezra Bik, and I will be giving the weekly share, my weekly share for Tuesdays, the share in major issues and problems in medieval Jewish philosophy. In the past few weeks, we've discussed First, providence, hashkacha, and then the problem of evil, which is a particular problem inherent in the doctrine of hashkacha pratit. If God does and is responsible and watches over the world, then why does it appear that he's not doing that good a job? There is evil in the world, the problem of evil. And then we discussed prophecy without connecting the two. Today I would like to speak first of the connection between the two, prophecy as being part of a doctrine of Hashkacha, of providence, and from that to to get to a wider understanding of Dalkeha Hashkacha, the modes and the means of providence, not the theory of providence itself, but how does God actually go about watching over and having his will carried out within within the world. And to begin I would like to uh, introduce a philosopher who I don't think we've spoken about often in this series, and that is the Valbag. The Valbag is called Gersonides in, in Latin and English, uh, Rabbi Levi ben Gershon. The Valbag was a great-grandson of the Ramban, and his position in, in the field, in the field of Jewish philosopher, meaning major Jewish philosophers, the ones we consider part of the normative canon, is to occupy the most extreme possible position of an Aristotelian in Jewish philosophy. Positions which the Rambam will express moderately and somehow fix and, and tone down will appear in the Balbag in their purest and most extreme form. One of the most crucial of those positions, one of the most crucial distinctions between the Rambam and the Balbag concerns Hashkacha. For in, in, in formal Aristotelian philosophy, Hashkacha becomes almost impossible. One, the Aristotelian God doesn't know what goes on in the world. To be exact, there are two kinds of knowledges. There's knowledge of particulars and knowledge of universals. So God knows what is man. He knows what is cow. He knows what is white. He knows mathematics. He knows all those things which are universal, meaning they apply to categories. But according to Aristotle, God does not know particulars. I mean, he doesn't know you. He doesn't know Yanko. He doesn't know what you've done yesterday or what Yanko has done tomorrow. Because that's not included in the theory of man. What's more, God, for Aristotle, also doesn't do anything. There is no means for, for God to actually be active in, in the world and to, and to change the course of, of the wind or to split the sea or to bring, or to bring rain. And therefore, practically speaking, there is no Hashkacha Pratit. When the Rambam discusses Hashkacha Pratit and does ascribe a theory of Hashkacha to the Rambam, he means, uh, and to God, excuse me, when the Rambam ascribes a theory of, of Hashkacha to God, the second opinion in the Rambam's five opinions on Hashkacha is that of Aristotle. It means that God, who is truth, who is wisdom, is responsible for those rules of, of the world which provide a providential atmosphere for people. Because since the world is created with wisdom, 
Created is, of course, our word. Aristotle wouldn't speak of creation. But since the world exists according to wisdom, or in the Rambam's version of Aristotle, since God has made the world, has created the world, in accordance with the divine wisdom, therefore, uh, wisdom says, and wisdom operates in such a way, that those who uh, behave and act in the proper manner, in the manner of wisdom, which includes morality, because morality is logical and rational, uh, will more or less benefit. If you're foolish and you don't obey the rules and you don't understand the way the world operates and you don't understand what's good for man and what's bad for man, you'll undoubtedly, you'll undoubtedly suffer. Now, undoubtedly is a very strong word here. It wouldn't appear that this kind of providence, the providence of being wise and living in accordance with wisdom, could be foolproof. There are too many accidents within the world. It might be true, and I understand that many people would disagree even with this, it might be true that crime doesn't pay. And that living a, a well-balanced, wise, moderate existence will give you the most happiness and, 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 the best, and the best possible life in general. But it's undoubtedly true that individuals will, statistically, it might be better off, but individuals will occasionally fall into the hole that opens up during the earthquake, and, and their wisdom is simply unavailable to help them. We'll get to the Rambam in a few minutes, but the Valbag faces this problem straight on, because the Valbag really says, yes, it's true. God, first of all, does not have knowledge of particulars in the world that the Valbag does subscribe to. And the way that the wise and the virtuous, it's almost the same thing, the way that the wise and the virtuous are protected in the world is by their wisdom. And he admits that that can't be 100%. And to close the gap between knowledge of the rules, knowledge of what's wise, knowledge of what's moral and beneficial, and in fact having a good life, the Rabag introduces prophecy. Prophecy for the Rabag, similar to the way I described prophecy for the Rambam uh, two weeks ago when we last spoke of this, Prophecy for the Valbag is a natural process. It's a kind of wisdom. It's a wisdom which gives you knowledge of things which rational wisdom wouldn't give you. But it's available to anyone who opens his mind and, and develops himself in such a way as to grasp these objects of, of knowledge. And Valbag states that because prophecy exists, remember, it's not a it's not sent by God to you. It's your ability to grasp the knowledge which exists, which is out there. It's to know the truth, to know the truth in not the normal way of wisdom, of rationality, but through a combination of uh, imagination and wisdom, and you get to know more things. And this helps to close the gap. So there may not be any rule of wisdom which would keep you from harm's way if there's going to be a sudden earthquake, but Prophecy might, in fact, warn you that the earthquake is going to take place, and then, if you're wise, you will move to a safer place. So here we have an example of someone looking at prophecy, one, in, in a relatively pragmatic manner, because prophecy helps you out. It's true that knowledge and wisdom for the Obag is a goal in and of itself. So prophecy is a goal, but the result of prophecy is to exhibit God's providence or the providence of wisdom and truth in general 
in order to maintain the gap between tzaddik v'tovlo, the good that comes to the tzaddik, and rasha v'ralo, and why the evil, who are fools and foolish, will eventually trip up in the course of things because their ignorance, both of wisdom and of prophecy, will eventually cause them to stumble and to fall. We'll get back to prophecy in a second. A word on the Rambam. The Rambam's position on the modes of Hashkacha is very, very difficult. There, there are dozens of opinions in, in the students of the Rambam to this day as to exactly what the Rambam means as to how Hashkacha works. The truth is the Rambam avoids, avoids facing the problem. On one hand, the Rambam says in the 17th chapter of the third section of Amen of Uchim, that one, providence results in that there is no uh, injustice in the world. Ein lifanav avel. God is just and therefore you cannot have a case of tzaddik v'ralo, at least theoretically. And that is accomplished because that's what Hashkacha does. Hashkacha is God's justice in the world. On the other hand, the Ram says that the way that Hashkacha works is in accordance to one's chokhmah, in accordance to one's knowledge of the truth. That is expressed in the amount of Hashkacha that one has. He doesn't say that the Hashkacha consists only of the knowledge, which is what the Rabbah says. He says that there is a direct proportional relationship between one's knowledge, one's knowledge of God, one's knowledge of the truth, and the amount of hashkacha one has. And therefore, he says, animals have no knowledge, and therefore they don't have hashkacha fatit. And people who are heretics, and basically non-Jews, who don't have the knowledge of the Torah, have less hashkacha. And Jews, and then philosophers, who have even more hashkacha, it's in direct proportion. Now, of course, people assume if it's in direct proportion, he's probably saying what the Rabbach says. Why is it in direct proportion? Because it's the same thing. The hashkacha is the knowledge. He doesn't say that explicitly. And I think... It is, there's a problem in saying that's what the Rambam means to say because the Rambam introduces this statement about the relationship between knowledge of God and Hashkacha with the statement that Ein Avel, there is no injustice. Now the Rambam admits that mere knowledge, only knowledge of God, only knowledge of the truth, only wisdom couldn't prevent all cases of injustice. But the Rambam not only thinks that both those things are true, that there is no injustice before God, and that there's a connection between knowledge and providence, he in fact states the two things within, within one page of each other, in one chapter, almost in one sentence. And it, it appears that Ram is deliberately avoiding explaining exactly how it works. And on the third hand, the Ram may, way later, at the end of Umed of Uchim, states that he has another opinion. He admits it's a different opinion, in which he says that those people who, those few individuals who maintain a constant state of knowledge of God, their minds are engaged in a, in a constantly seeing before them the truth of God's existence, they in fact have miraculous providence which will miraculously, through direct intervention of God's miraculous hand, prevent any evil from befalling them. Except, or unless, they even temporarily go down, decline, and the direct connection, the knowledge of God, is broken. 
The Mamam says that's not the same opinion I expressed in the 17th parak. It's a different opinion. So somewhere between these opinions, the Mamam is apparently trying to achieve the result which the more common opinion that God's providence is God pulling strings all over the world would achieve, protecting the righteous and punishing the, the evildoers. Ramam wants that result. He says that is Da'at Torateinu HaKtosha. That is the only opinion, which is the opinion of the Torah. On the other hand, he, he wants two other things. One, he wants to say that there are different degrees of providence, something which is agreed to by many, many Jewish philosophers. The, the better people, in the Ramam's case, the wise, who are also the righteous, have more providence than those who are not wise. And two, the Ramam wants to say that, in fact, the connection is not between virtue and providence, between wisdom and providence. And so therefore, we have the Ralbag, which there are many people who think that's the Ramam's position. Just Ramam doesn't want to say it. We have the Ralbag who says, providence is wisdom, add to that prophecy, a special kind of wisdom. Uh, I, I suspect the Ramam doesn't agree to that extreme view. But, uh, and I have my own opinion as to what the Ramam really says, but it's not that important because there are, it, it, it's, it's a constant battle, constant discussion, constant disagreement as to exactly how to define the Ramam's position. I suspect very strongly that the Ramam deliberately tried to obfuscate the issue and does not explain exactly how he thinks it could work because he does want to achieve the maximalist result without giving up the idea that providence is at least a reflection of one's connection with God, and one's real connection with God, according to the Ramam, is knowledge, is wisdom, is intellectual. This I would like to contrast with the opinion of Rav Chastai Kreskas. We saw when we discussed providence that where the Ramam speaks of wisdom, Rav Chastai speaks of love. The Ramam speaks of the knowledge of God, Rav Chastai speaks of the love of God. But Rav Chastai's love of God is also reflected in a different love. The love of God that Rav Chastai speaks about is that we, the goal of man's life is to love God. But Rav Chastai also says that God loves man. And the word love in those two sentences, man loves God and God loves man, for Rav Chastai is the same exact love. It's the same thing. Meaning the same kind of thing. In a very, very striking a, a drush, basically a drush, that Rav Chastai says, he compares God's love of man to man's love of God as reflected in the verbs used in the Torah. The Torah says that man should love God, ahavta et Hashem elokecha, you should love God, the word is ahava, but when it describes God's love of man, the Torah says, or love of the Jewish people, it says, rak bachem chashak Hashem. God loved you, but the verb is chashak. What's the difference between ahav, we love God, ahav, and God loves us, chashak? So if Chastai says the difference is one of degree, not one of, of meaning. It's not a semantic difference. It's merely one of degree. Chashak is stronger love. And then he goes on to explain a very, very interesting point. He says, you would have expected that in fact it should be the other way around. We should love God more than God loves us because we love God because He's great. So God incites, elicits, provokes, as it were, the response in man of love. 
But for God to love man, man isn't so much worthy of being loved. He's not so wonderful. He's not perfect. So how much love could one have for man? So you would have expected that right, God loves man. He's, he makes a big effort. But surely we should love God. God is infinite. We should, we should love God. The, the ideal would be to love God infinitely. And God should love man in proportion to what man says. He says, no, the Torah says the other way around. You should le'ehov, but God is choshek, and choshek is more. And he explains the reason is because there are two separate considerations here. The first consideration that we mentioned is in fact true. The amount of love one has towards an object is proportional to the value of the object. And therefore, for instance, if I love two people, one of whom is better than the other, then I love the better person more than the, the less good person. But he says love is also proportional to your ability to love. Because love for Rav Chastai is a moral quality. And therefore, God who is perfect also loves perfectly. And even though the object of his love is this world, and man within it, and the Jewish people within man, an object not that worthy of love, but God's ability to love, Love is the expression of God's goodness. And since God's goodness is infinite, so too God's love is infinite and encompasses man and the world and everything in it in a manner which man, who is not perfect and his goodness is not perfect, is unable, incapable of, of expressing even when the object of his love is God himself. And therefore, Rav Chastai says, God loves the world and loves man far more than can be expected or commanded or ever achieved by imperfect man, even when he is loving the most perfect of all, when he is loving God. Now, Rav Chastai says that God loves the world. How do I know God loves the world? He has a particular definition of love in mind. He says, I know God loves the world because God made the world. And there was no need for God to make the world. So why did he make the world? Because he wanted to, to, to do something for the world. He wanted to give the world existence. That indicates perfect love. In other words, love for Avchastai is, is expressed in service, in doing things for. La'avod, to serve. La'ehov, to love, are very, very close concepts in Avchastai's definition. In general, this is not our topic today. If you go over not just the Middle Ages, but all Jewish thinkers, I think or maybe all thinkers, in all the ages, and look at how they define love. A major topic in Jewish philosophy is ahava v'yirah, the difference between love of God and fear of God. As I, I suspect that as many philosophers as you read, that's how many different definitions you'll eventually, you'll eventually find. It's a notoriously elusive concept. Love for Avchastai is, is service. We know God loves the world because He does things for the world. And He doesn't do it for Himself. He's doing it for the world. And it's pure. He doesn't get anything out of it. So that, in fact, is pure, is pure love. When Ephraim calls on man to love God, he means to do the same thing the other way around. He means to serve God, to do His will, to do things for His name, not for yourself, but for, but for, but for Him. So we know God loves the world because He made the world. And once He made the world, He continues to love the world by doing things for the world and for and for man. The greatest thing that God can do for man, the greatest good that he can give man, 
is Dvekut Vashem, is himself. How does God give himself to man? By making, by helping man become worthy of this closeness to God. What is the closeness to God? The closeness to God is Avat Hashem. We've just closed the circle. It's not a paradox, it's an equation. God's love of man leads him to help man love God. Because when man loves God, love is real. Mavchaste is a romantic in a sense. Love is real. If man loves God, then that is the vikut, that is cleaving, that is a kind of union. When two people, when two persons love each other, they, they are combined, they are connected. So man's love of God is a connection to God, and that's the greatest good that could possibly be gotten, be achieved by man. And so therefore God's love of the world is expressed in His leading at least human beings, specifically Jews, to the closest possible relationship with Him. And how does He do that? He does that by making them better people. Here I return to the point I mentioned beforehand. Love is a moral quality. Chasta in an important sentence says that Tov Ohev Et Hatov Vahashalem Ukifi Erechatov Kain Erechava. The good loves the good and the perfect. Love is the relationship between a good, a good person, and the good, the good and the perfect. God is the good and the perfect, and therefore good people love God. The better you are, the more good you are, the more you love God. So how does God make us have more? How does He give us more? Parentheses, of Himself. He does this by helping us become better. How does He make us become better? One, He gave us the Torah. Two, he arranges things, we spoke about this, the Nisayon, he arranges the world in such a way that we have experiences which elicit from ourselves better and deeper virtues. That was the idea of Nisayon, of, of trial. That was the Hashkacha Pratis of, of actions. Three, another example, Nivu'ah. Nivu'ah exists not because God wants to talk to you, Nivu'ah exists because for certain people, those who are already on the level where they're close to God and can most benefit from a little bit of an extra push, for God will speak to them or speak to someone else to speak to them. It makes no difference whether you God speaks directly to you. The main thing is the, mes- the, the message. But God will give a specific message beyond the message of the Torah in general, which will correct, which will enlighten, which will bring you even closer to God not by giving you intellectual knowledge, but by helping you, again, become a better person. So the purpose of Nebuah is to make you a better person. Why is that the purpose of Nebuah? Because the purpose of everything is to make you a better person. Nebuah is merely an expression of Hashkacha Pratit, when Hashkacha Pratit is defined as being God's love. And here, of course, I return to a point I made in the past. There's a very important difference between Hashkacha as justice, the way the Ramam speaks of Hashkacha, it's a reactive thing. God reacts to virtue or to crime by judging and punishing or giving reward. And hashkacha as love. Because hashkacha as love is God is looking for ways to make you better. Whereas hashkacha in the Ramam is God is committed 
to doing justice, to giving the good a good reward and giving the evil the proper the proper punishment. So there isn't any necessary reason for the Ramam to connect prophecy with Hashkacha. He could include it in the general Hashkacha of the Ralbag, but in the personal Hashkacha, the Ramam doesn't draw this connection. Personal Hashkacha is, is reward and punishment. But Rav Chastai, Hashkacha is just one more, excuse me, Nivuah, prophecy, is just one more example of the multifaceted way that God all the time is pulling strings, giving messages, giving the Torah, expressing His love of man by having man become better, improve his ways, become closer to God, and therefore achieve the greatest good that can be achieved, the closeness and the cleaving to God Himself, the Vekut, the Vekut, the Vekut Bashem. We spoke uh, the last time about how the, within the history of Jewish philosophy in Spain, so Nebuah becomes less and less central as a religious experience. And Mavchastai is a prime example of that. He says, Nebuah is important if God wants to make you better. Ahava, love, is the most crucial and most important and central religious experience. Nebuah is not love. If God loves you, because you love him, that was if there's a loving relationship that exists between you, it's very possible or likely that there will also be nevuah. Those who are far from God, then they're not on the level that this this special kind of providence is relevant for them. But it's merely nevuah is merely there. You you aspire to nevuah because it might help you more if you need it. On the other hand, if you don't need it. Because, one, you have Torah. Two, you read the Nevi'im. Three, Rav Chasa gives an example. You might have a friend who just gives you Musa. Helps you out, corrects your ways, helps you get to God. Then you don't need. There's no particular reason for a, a the message of Nevoah. So Nevoah is an important tool, but only one among the many tools that God has that apply to the Jewish people as a whole or to given individuals to help them achieve their greatest potential betov, as good, as good individuals, develop their personality and in in consequence their relationship, their relationship with God. I mentioned that Rav Chastai says that love means to serve, to do things for. God is engaged in constant love of the world by the very fact that He keeps the world in existence and, 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 and runs it. And, and all the time is looking for ways to bring individuals in the world to their greatest potential. Man, man's greatest potential is to love God because love is genuine cleaving unto God. So if Chastai has the following, the following vote, it's a kind of a drush. It's important enough that he says it twice. In Pekei Avot, we read the following double sentence. Yafeh sha'a achat shel Torah u'ma'asim ba'olam hazeh mikol chayei ha'olam haba. One hour of Torah and good deeds in this world is yafeh, is worth more, is nicer, is better 
than all the existence in the next world. One hour of, of pleasantness, of enjoyment, of enjoyment in the next world is worth more than all of this world. A deliberately contradictory and paradoxical statement. Rav Chasta explains it as follows. He says, from our point of view, if we love God, we're not trying to get things for ourselves. If you love God, you want things only for God. And therefore, the righteous prefer correctly one hour of Torah umasim tovim, of doing things, of serving God in this world, because in the next world, this is an assumption which is difficult to prove, but it was an assumption made by most thinkers in the Middle Ages, in the next world there's nothing to do. Lo ha-metim In the next world, you only have the benefit, you only have the korat ruach, you have the the enjoyment, the happiness, the, the feeling of being loved and in love, but not the actions. But the lover doesn't want to have that, that particular pleasantment and enjoyment. That's not his goal. If that was his goal, he's not really loving. He's loving himself. He wants to serve God. So therefore, from the point of view of man, Yafesh Achat Shel Torah Umasim Tovim Olam Mikol Olam But from the point of view of God, what does God want to do? God wants to bring man to achieve his greatest good. His greatest good is the cleavage unto God, which is called the Korat Ruach. That's the enjoyment of the next world. These aren't two separate things. They're the same thing, but they're two different sides to the same coin. Because love is, from the lover's point of view, it is service. And from the objective point of view, in this case from God's point of view, it itself is the greatest good for the one who loves. And so therefore, God wishes us to be on Lam Habas so that we can achieve the closeness to Him and, and benefit and enjoy that particular psychological, metaphysical existence. But the lover is not interested in that. If he were interested in that, he'd be, he'd be uh, undermining the love in which, he's, in which he's engaged. And therefore, both statements are true at the same time, and in fact, they express the same truth, but from two different, from two different points, from two different points of view. That's the end of our discussion for today. Next week, which will be the last in this series, uh, we will return to the question of the love of God, which we introduced today in Lavchastai. And we will discuss it in other thinkers. As I said, it's a major theme in and of itself. Specifically, we will talk about what the Ramam does say about the love of God, the love and the fear of God, as well as Rabbeinu Bachya and others. And uh, we conclude, we will conclude today's uh, shiur with the Halacha Yomit. The Mechaber Paskins in Shulchan Aruch, Tzarich Shiakuf Roshal Ma'at Shiyu Einav Lemata Laaretz Viachshov Kiilu Omed Veta Migdash Uvalibo Yechavain Lemala La Shamayim. So Machaba says that when one davens, you should bend your head down so that your eyes face the floor. And the reason is Yachshov Kiilu Omed Veta Migdash. You should feel that you're standing in the Veta Migdash and then you look down. 
but bilibo in your heart, you focus, you concentrate, you focus on the heavens. If you recall, when we spoke about the direction of tefillah, facing Yerushalayim, so we saw that one who does not know where Yerushalayim is, one who is blind or has lost one's direction, sense of direction, so there are two different uh, uh, versions. The way it says in our Gemara is, Yichavein libo the Yerushalayim, he should focus mentally on Yerushalayim, but the Rambam says he should focus mentally on the heaven. And I think it means the same thing, but he's focusing mentally in any event. But here there's a real distinction. Here it says you should look down and think up. It's based on the Gemara in Ivamot, Daf Kufei, Hamitpalat Sarich Shitain Einav Lamata, Vilibo Lamala. Your eyes should face down and your heart should face up. Interestingly, there's a statement found in Sefer Hasidim, which is quoted by the Magan Avram, and from there it's quoted in the Mishnabu as well, as Halacha. The, the, the Sefer Hasidim says there are some people who when they dive in, they, they look up, they, they stare at the ceiling. They're, they're, they're trying to look up to the heavens. It's a kind of religiosity. And the Sefer Hasidim, which is not a book written by by, uh, by a Kalta Litvak, it's not written in Litvak. Sefer Hasidim is a pietist work. He says, Anashim hamagbiim rasham b'shatat fila kimabitim elagad. People who raise their heads and 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 look up at the ceiling of the shul during tefila. Malachei hasharet lo agim lehem. Says the angels ridicule them. It, it it elicits cynicism. It has a cynical reaction in heaven. It's the wrong kind of religiosity. The way to daven is to look is to look down. And the very expression looking down seems to imply that you're looking at the ground, not just tilting your head down. The, the, the Gemara doesn't even mention tilting your head. The Gemara says, You should place your eyes down. The Mechaba said, Bend your head so that your eyes look down. It can even be proven from the Rambam. The Rambam has a halacha that says you should not be looking at colored pictures, which could distract you. So the, this, this, this particular posture of looking down has to do with kavana, uh, modesty, uh, um, being servile and subject to the majesty of God. You're standing in the Beit HaMikdash, so you don't look. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid to look at the sneh, at the burning bush, because God was there. You don't, you don't look directly, you look down. But it, your eyes apparently are open, or they could be open. That's what the Bible has to say. You shouldn't be looking at pictures or, or something else. Um we mentioned the halacha once that a shul should have windows. And Rashi says the reason is that people can look outside and see the heavens and this will put them into the right, the right mood. So the Achorinam asked, how could that be? The Gemara says, you're not allowed to look up. You should be looking down. So the answer they give, the Bach, the Magan Avram, is that Rashi is saying that before one davens, one takes a look up. Or one knows, one feels that it's there. You're sort of subject to the influence of heaven. But you're actually not looking at the sky, which would distract you from Papa Kavana. But you're looking at the floor, and your heart is soaring, is soaring in the sky. There is, however, a a halacha which derives from the Zohar. In the Zohar, it says that one should have one's eyes closed. Somewhat more strongly, it says one should have one's eyes covered when one davens. But the reason is a different reason. It's not because of kavana. It's because the lashon of the Zohar, the language of the Zohar, is begin the lo yistakel b'shchinta. You cover your eyes so that you should not see. You should not look at the Shekhinah. Again, I refer to the 
definition I mentioned a few times in the last week or so. One who davens is standing before God. You're not talking to God. You're not sending emails to God. You're not talking to God on a telephone. It's a personal standing. It's an audience in the presence of God. So the Zohar takes us to an extreme. If you're standing in the presence of God, then God is God's shechina. God's presence is directly in front of you. And that's something that you can't even imagine looking at. Man cannot behold God. And therefore, the Zohar says you have to close your eyes. And if you keep your eyes open, the Zohar speaks very, very strongly, you're inviting death. And a person like that, who, who has davened with his eyes open, when, he, when it comes his time to depart, he will then not see the clarity of the Divine Presence, he won't merit the kind of death called Mavet Nishika. It, it seems to be clear that this is was not the, the Pesachah that we shown him, but uh, the statement of the Zohar had a great deal of influence on later Poskim, and uh, therefore they definitely recommend, may not be halacha, but they recommend davening with one's eyes closed. I, I, it, it would appear that it, it surely fits in with the idea expressed in the Gemara that where one looks affects one's kavana. One looks at the floor. If you don't look at even at the floor, you perhaps tilt your head down to show to show subjugation to God, but you keep your eyes closed so that nothing could possibly bother you, it definitely would increase kavana. But again, the Zohar is not talking about kavana. The Zohar is talking about a, a reality that one is standing before God and therefore one doesn't look. One doesn't look at something which is too great to look at. So it's not halacha, but it's a, it's a very strong recommendation. In any event... This halacha does not apply, all the posts can say, to Adamus from Asidur. Because the idea of the Gemara, of having Kavana, surely trumps any other consideration. And if you daven with a sitter, because, either because you need it, because you can't have it by heart, or because you have more Kavana, we daven from a sitter. I think it's a, this is a personal, psychological thing. Some people daven better without a sitter. Uh, personally, I generally do not use a sitter when I daven from Asidur. I find that reading the words detracts from my kavana, but I know many people who have the exact opposite reaction. Even if you know it by heart well, but looking at the words and, and reacting with them, the letters, the letters make it easier or better. And if, that, if that's true, then kavana trumps any other consideration, and therefore someone who damns from a sitter is, shouldn't even think twice, it's lechatchila, there's no problem. You keep your eyes open, you look in the city, you look around, you look at the sitter, looking at the sitter is the same as, as looking internally. You're not, you're not seeing the world. You're seeing tefillah. There's no difference between keeping your eyes closed and only seeing yourself and seeing the sitter, which basically means seeing only your own, your own words. If ever you do daven by heart, then uh, the words of the Zohar are a, a strong recommendation to daven with one's eyes closed. And in any event, the words of the Gemara is that one looks down and not up you're, you're dominating very privately, very modestly, very tsanua, very internally. But one's heart, one's heart is traveling, is concentrating, is focused on the heavens above and before the, before the presence of God. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the weekly share of Harabi Yamin Tavori, the weekly mitzvah. Until then, this is Ezra Beck. Wishing you kol tov and continued enjoyment 
and participation in Torah. Vibakata Torah Mitzion, you've been listening to KMTT. Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Mi Yerushalayim.